text, Judges 10, starting at verse 6. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead, his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead 
and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Now continuing at verse 29. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. Then Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. You give the Ammonites into my hands. Whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns of Roar to the vicinity of Minith, as far as Abel Keramim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of t timbrels. She was, only, she was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down. I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. The Ephraimite forces were called out, and they crossed over to Zaphon. They said to Jephthah, Why did you go to fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We're going to burn down your house over your head. Jephthah answered, I and my people were engaged in a great struggle with the Ammonites. And although I called, you didn't save me out of their hands. When I saw that you wouldn't help, I took my life into my own hands and crossed over to fight the Ammonites. And the Lord gave me the victory over them. Now why have you come up today to fight me? Jephthah then called together the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. The Gileadites struck them down because the Ephraimites had said, You Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Ephraim. And whenever a survivor of Ephraim said, Let me cross over. The men of Gilead asked him, Are you an Ephraimite? If he replied, No, they said, All right, say Shibleth. If he said Sibleth, 
because he could not pronounce the word correctly, they seized him and killed him at the forge of the Jordan. 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. Jephthah led Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in a town in Gilead. This is God's word. Thanks very much, Diana, for reading the passage to us. Hi, everyone. Let me have my welcome to you. Pete's, if I don't know you, my name's Mark. I'm one of the ministers here, and a particular warm welcome if this is your first time with us. It is great to, you, to have you here as we continue this sermon series in the Old Testament book of Judges and deeper into the darkness of human sin we go as I wrestle with this other microphone I'm trying to put on. Here we go. So yeah, I mean, that might be a daunting thing to hear, deeper into the darkness of human sin we go, but if you've been joining us throughout this sermon series, you'll know that one of the main purposes of this particular Bible book is to show us the cyclical nature of sin and the way we fall back into sin time and time again. Um, But this cycle, it's not like a, a wheel sort of spinning round and round. Uh, This cycle is more like a a helter-skelter that goes um, down and down, uh, lower and lower, as the gravity of sin has more of its effect uh, on us. And here, in this particular passage, we hit arguably the lowest point in in Israel's history. Um, Greed, uh, envy, murder, death. One of God's own leaders here sacrifices his daughter. And by the end of the passage, well, 42,000 of God's own people, their blood lies splattered across the nation. And it is a, a horror show. And if you're thinking to yourselves, like, really, God, are you really needing to show us more of this stuff? Have we not seen enough already in the book of Judges so far? Well, the answer is no. He wants to take us deeper into the darkness of human sin. He wants to take you and I deeper into the darkness of our own idolatrous hearts to see where it leads, to see what happens when idolatry embeds itself in a nation. And in fact, if you want to truly grasp what's going on in our nation right now with the fatal stabbings in London, with the high abortion rates in this country, with the pornification of culture, with the angry, polarized rhetoric in the political sphere, you have got to come to grips with the reality of idolatry, with the devastating consequences of it, and how you and I need to be desperately rescued from it. So that's what this passage is about. That's where we're going. Come with me now to it under three headings. An idolatrous nation, an idolatrous leader, and an idolatrous victory. First, in verses 6 to 16 of chapter 10, on page 254, an idolatrous nation. Verse 6, again, because this is not the first time, again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This is not the first time, nor the second, that this is the fifth time in the book of Judges as the Israelites fall back into the same old sin and go after the same old idols. 
And like a dog returns to its vomit, the proverb says, so a fool goes after and repeats its folly. So it is with you and I. Whenever we fall back into the same old sin, go after the same old idols, despite the consequences to us, despite the guilt we feel, we seek the Lord's forgiveness to say, Lord, I will never do it again. And then a week later, in some instances, a few hours later, we succumb. What is it about human nature that we act this way? That we fall back into the same old sin like a dog in its vomit. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. Because sin never satisfies. Because idols always demand more. As if serving the Baals and the Asterisks, the gods of Canaan, weren't enough. They seem to be worshipping every god under the sun now, from the north, from the east, from the southwest, worshipping any and every god apart from the one true god of the Bible who made them, rescued them, saved them time and time again. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. Israel was in great distress because there is always a price to pay for idolatry. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller quotes Cynthia Hymel from The Village Voice, who describes how fame has destroyed some of the celebrities that she once knew really well. She writes, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then laughs merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. You see, Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis and Barbara Streisand wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, had happened, and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. And that is the price of idolatry. Whenever we live our lives, whenever we try to build our own identities, on anything other than the Lord himself. Be it fame like these celebrities, or be it money, sex, relationships, family, security. Often good things, good things that the Lord gives us, but when we go after these things to seek our ultimate happiness, fulfillment, these things ultimately crush us. through a drivenness to achieve them, a resentment if we don't, a severe anxiety over losing them, envy of others who have it. We become obsessed, we become addicted. 
even if we succeed like Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, Barbara Streisand, we realise it never satisfies. Idols crush us, idols are all around us, be it the virtue of working all hours at the office, seeking value from your social network, self-determination of your gender or sexual identity, materialism and individualism are a cultural phenomenon left unchecked. The promises of idolatry crowding our advertisements. I was reading an article on the BBC Three website just this week entitled Millennial Burnout. I'm not sure if you've seen it. People working so hard in their careers, people desperately wanting to make a difference in the world, but their personal lives, and in particular their personal administration, is a complete mess. And they describe themselves as stressed out, guilty, permanently tired, and now burnt out. 20s, early 30s. Idols crush us, idols shatter us, idols leave us in great distress. What do we need to do? Well, verse 10, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, we have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. And in the four other cycles in the Judges, when the Israelites do this, what happens? The Lord hears their cry and the Lord raises up a deliverer and the Lord saves his people. But look at verse 11. The Lord replied, when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. Is this sarcasm from the mouth of the Lord? Oh, I recognise this cry of yours, this cry for help, but it's not a cry for me. Because as soon as I save you, you're off to these other gods. Well, if you want these gods, you have these gods. Let them save you. And the Israelites go into panic mode in verse 15. We have sinned. They confess their sin again. Do with us whatever you think best. They throw themselves on God's mercy. Please rescue us. They plead again. They even get rid of their foreign gods. They even serve the Lord. But soberly, there is no mention of forgiveness here from the Lord. There is no mention of him raising up a judge. All we get is this, this ambiguous phrase in the Hebrew in verse 16 that translates here as, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. And we might think, oh, here's the compassionate God reaching out to save them anyway. Much more likely in the context, this verse is saying, and he could not tolerate their cries for help anymore. He is fed up with their fake repentance. He had had enough of them crying out time and time again, but with no change of heart. He's had enough of being used by them. And here is the point. You can turn from idolatry in an idolatrous way. You can turn to the Lord, not caring about the Lord, but still caring about yourself and only what God can do for you. Do you find yourself crying out to the Lord only when you are in trouble, but largely ignore him the rest of the time? 
when you think of heaven, when you think of the new creation? What is it that you are most excited about? What is it you're looking forward to? A perfect new world, freedom from sin, justice at large? Or is it that you will be with Jesus Christ himself? And when you look at your own Christian life, how much of it can be said to be focused on God, his purposes, his glory? Or are you mostly interested in just what he can give you? Our idolatry runs very deep. You can even turn from idolatry in an idolatrous way. And we need to repent properly from the heart and care about God, not just ourselves. Well, look, if that is an idolatrous nation. Secondly, in verse 17, all the way through to the end of chapter 11, we see an idolatrous leader. An idolatrous nation leading to an idolatrous leader as we are introduced to this guy called Jephthah and his terrible vow. This vow really overshadows the whole chapter. Uh, Even God's victory gets only two verses and the rest of the chapter we see the devastating consequences of his vow. This is a large section. We're going to have to go quickly over the first part so we can focus in on the vow. Um, But in a nutshell, from verse 17 through to 11, verse 11, a judge is raised up. But unlike the other judges in the four cycles so far, the Lord's silence here is deafening. No mention of the Lord raising him up. No mention of the leaders praying to the God or seeking his will. This seems to be a purely human choice. They've heard about this Jephthah guy. He's a mighty warrior. Oh, he'll be good to defeat the Ammonites. Let's go after him. And in verses 1 to 3, we see Jephthah himself is from a deeply dysfunctional family. His mother's a prostitute. His brothers drive him away for fear of losing their inheritance. And Jephthah ends up in a life of crime in the land of Tob. Then in verses 4 to 10, the leaders have to twist his arm, dangle the carrot of leadership in front of him so that he will go into battle for them. And as Jethro is sworn in in verse 11, there is a huge question mark over him as the Lord remains completely silent. Next in verses 12 to 28, we didn't have this bit read. We're continuing to go quickly here. But Jethro goes the diplomatic route first with Ammon. Using an historical argument in verses 14 to 22, a theological argument in verses 23 to 24, and an argument from precedent in verses 25 to 26 to show that the land never belonged to Ammon, but was won fair and square by Israel from the Amorites. And just by the way, um, a careful reading of this, perhaps later if you have time, um, gives some really helpful principles in Israel's conquest of the land and actually the godly way that Israel treated the other nations. So I'll commend that uh, to you if that's something you want to look into. For now, focus in on verse 27 as Jephthah brings his so-called speech uh, to an end. I have not wronged you, he says, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Amnites. 
Ammonites. Now, this is just Jephthah's shining moment. This is why Jephthah is recorded as one of the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Because even though he's rejected by his own people previously, here he is prepared to lead God's people into battle. And despite his upbringing, and despite this troubled past, here he is now trusting in God and trusting God for the victory. And the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him in verse 29, and he advances against the Ammonites at the end of verse 29, and we're expecting victory from the Lord, but we're in for a shock. Because in verse 30, he makes this terrible vow. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Now, what is Jephthah doing? Why is he making this vow? The Spirit of the Lord has become upon him. Victory is assured. What is he doing trying to twist God's arm? What is he trying to do here to bribe God into victory? It's not who God is. That is not how God relates to his people. It is a terrible vow which now clouds the rest of the chapter because victory comes in verses 32 to 33 straight away as you'd expect from the Lord. But unlike all the other judges previously, there is no peace in the land. There is now only disaster. Verse 34, when Jephthah returned to his home in Mitzpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? dancing to the sound of tambourines because the Lord has given his people the victory. She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down. Well, no, you've brought yourself down. I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replies... You have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. This innocent, sweet, godly girl. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, Jephthah says. His last words to his daughter. And he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed. We are spared the details. But according to the vast majority of Old Testament scholars, the Hebrew leaves us into no doubt that he really did do to her as he had vowed and sacrificed her to the Lord as a burnt offering. This awful awful moment in Israel's history. And if you're anything like me, you're, you're probably thinking to yourself, why did Jephthah even make a vow like this when God hates human sacrifice? Calls it detestable in Deuteronomy 12. Why did he go through with this vow once he'd realized what a terrible mistake he'd made? There's provision in the law to pay off your vows. Why not pay it off here? And why is Jethro mucking around with God in the first place, trying to bribe him and twist his arm? God's a God of grace. He promised victory. What is going on? We don't understand it. It comes as a shock to us. 
And the point is, this is what can happen. Even this is what can happen when idolatry so embeds itself in a nation. When you are so enamored by the cultural idols of the day, you end up blinded to God's truth. You see it with the leaders of Gilead, worshipping human reason, that they choose their leader, not by God's wisdom, by human ingenuity. You see it with Jephthah's father, worshipping sex, having sex with a prostitute, rather than staying faithful to his wife. You see it with Jephthah's brothers, worshipping money, their inheritance, such that they banish their brother and do not show care and compassion to him as the Lord requires. And you see it with Jephthah himself, that he is so infected by the pagan cultural idols around him And some of the nations did sacrifice their children to their God to secure victory. That he thinks he needs to do this himself. Even though God is a God of grace who hates this sort of behavior. It is a horror show. And we are meant to be shocked by it. Our hearts are meant to cry out inside of us, no! What is he doing? And if you think this could never happen to us today, where the worship of sex and the sexual revolution has led to more divorces, more family breakdown, more single mums, did you know that half of the children born in the UK now by age 16 are living with just one of their biological parents? where children are, metaphorically speaking, sacrificed for the idol of career, where some children, and I use my words very carefully, some children are literally sacrificed in their mother's wombs at the altar of convenience. Where the worship of money, materialism, has led to banks being too big to fail, So when the credit crunch comes, who pays? The ordinary person in the street. Austerity, universal credit. I even read something last week about how people are trying to link austerity to knife crime. Now we need to be very careful with things like this because often things are far more complex and we often want too simplistic answers. But if there is any link between it, a link in a very complex chain, then can it even be said that the idol of greed in this country has led to some of our teenagers being hacked down in the streets? It is a horror show, what we see around us. Are you shocked by it? Do your hearts cry out inside of you, no, what am I doing to myself? What is this nation doing to itself? Or are you, in fact, not too bothered? And therefore, not too dissimilar to Jephthah. And so, enamored or affected by the cultural idols of the day, that we are now blinded to God's obvious truth. We need to repent. 
we need to throw ourselves on God's mercy. Where we see this in our own hearts, seek his forgiveness, commit ourselves afresh to the truth of his word, and trust and obedience to it. An idolatrous nation leading to an idolatrous leader. Thirdly, and much more briefly in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 12, to an idolatrous victory. As if the uh, death of Jethro's daughter did not leave enough of a stain on God's victory here, the death toll rises in chapter 12 where 42,000 Ephraimites are killed at the hands of the Gileadites, both members of God's people. We've met the Ephraimites before in chapter 8 with Gideon. They are glory hunters. They want to have the victory for themselves. Gideon managed to pacify them back then by appealing to their pride. What was I able to do compared to you? But Jethro, as we know, is a mighty warrior. He seems more up for a fight. In verse 1, the Ephraimites say to Jephthah, why did you go to fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We're going to burn down your house over your head, which must have struck a raw nerve of Jephthah, given what's just happened with his daughter, a virgin, no son or daughter, his family line, his house, now dead. Jephthah says, I called out to you. You didn't come, so I went to fight myself for them. God gave me the victory. But the Ephraimites insult him again in verse 4. You Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. You're not a pure tribe like us. You're like half-breeds. And at this point, Jephthah's had enough, calls the men of Gilead to war, and strikes the Ephraimites down, including this particularly gruesome incident at the fjord when the survivors of Ephraim are trying to get back to their land and they ask them to say this word, shibboleth, and if they say it, sibboleth without the sh, they hack the person down because they know the Ephraimites can't pronounce it properly. And again, it's just such a horrible mess. The idol of glory, hunting for yourself, leading to the envy of others, leading to these insults, quick to judge, God's people tearing themselves apart. Beware this idolatry in your own heart. Beware the envy of others. It will tear us apart as a church. Wherever you see it in your life right now, putting down others because we're jealous of them being up the front or because they're an inspired group leader and we're not or because they're on the leadership team or people go to them for spiritual advice rather than you. It is ugly when we seek our own glory, not the Lord's. Seek our own good rather than the good of others. When idolatry embeds itself in a church, we can tear ourselves apart. Beware of it. What then are we meant to do with all this? Well, as I said at the start... One of the main purposes of this book is to take us deeper into the darkness of human sin. Hasn't he done that in these verses? To see the horror show that results when idolatry embeds itself in a nation and a church. And as we have seen, just how low things can get. And actually, they are going to get lower, even lower than this in the book of Judges. We've got to see that there's only one way out. There's only one person who can rescue us from this mess that we get ourselves in. One who was rejected by men, but chosen by God. One who had the Spirit of the Lord come upon him, but did not try to twist or bribe God's arm. 
one who won victory for the Lord's people, but without any stain to it. One who did not sacrifice others, but sacrificed himself for our sin, our idolatry, and all the times we go after the things of this world, the things he gives us, think we will find meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment in them. Jesus Christ is the one flawless leader we have. Jephthah was horribly flawed. Jesus Christ never lets you down. Run to him right now. The sin you know in your heart, the idolatry you experience right now, the way the Spirit's convicting you personally of that sin, run to him now and cry out to him and receive forgiveness. He has died for you. He has risen from the dead. He is leading the church perfectly from heaven. And his power is available for you now to root that sin and root that idolatry out of your life. Cry out to him from the heart. Trust him. Live for him. Obey him. Anything else will be a horror show. Let me pray for us. Father, there are some parts of your scripture that are sobering, shocking, hard-hitting. And yet we know that you give us all the different aspects and richness of your word to draw us closer to you. Please would you expose in our own hearts and lives, the church, this nation, the depths and darkness of our sin, the depths and darkness of the idols of our own heart. And please would you move us by your spirit to turn from it, not in an idolatrous way, but in a genuine way to you, the one who loves us, has died for us, forgives us, transforms us, our perfect leader. Would you help each and every one of us to do that now? We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.